Hey, it's great to see you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church and Happy New Year to you. If this is your first time at Trinity, we're really glad you're here. If you are one of our uh, families, members watching at home, uh, we're glad that you're with us as well. We haven't forgotten about you and we love you. Uh, but Happy New Year. It's great to see you. It's great to be starting a new year together. And as we, as we launch into this new year, uh, we're going to be starting a new series in the book of Ephesians, God's vision for the church, in two weeks. And that'll be a series that we do through most of the spring, about 20 weeks or so. But in these first two Sundays, what Pastor and Casey and I and, and the leadership team have talked about doing is a couple of sermons on the, the theme of worship. Uh, now, worship is a very familiar concept in the church world, and then every now and then worship, we, we see it show up in popular culture, in movies or, or music or TV. And one of my, my favorite um, novelists, American writers of the past couple of decades, David Foster Wallace, he would write these long, winding novels like Infinite Jest, if you're familiar with that, or uh, I particularly like his nonfiction. He has essays on everything from tennis prodigies to uh, like lobster festivals and uh, on taking cruises. He calls it a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Uh, fantastic writer, uh, passed away several years ago. But in 2005, Wallace gave a commencement speech at this, you know, kind of fancy liberal arts university, and he said this. He said, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. He's not a believer. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap your real meaning in life, you will never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths. Proverbs, cliches, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is to keep the truth up front in daily consciousness. Now, Wallace was giving voice to what's maybe an unpopular truth, but it is certainly a truth that we are designed as worshiping human beings. We're, we're always worshiping, and, and who or what we worship is of, of the utmost importance. But a second challenge is keeping what we worship in front of us at all times, or as he puts it, in our daily consciousness. Everybody worships because it's what we were created to do. It's, it's in our God-given DNA. It's why we long to identify with something or, or someone that's above us or, or beyond us, greater than us, to give us value and meaning in life. It's why we cheer at sports games. It's why we, we sing at concerts. It's why we dance at weddings. It's because at heart, by design, we are worshipers. And so I'm, I'm calling today's message the foolishness of worship, because I want to look at worship in contrast to what the world thinks about worship. And I could do a psalm or a New Testament passage, but I love this one scene in King David's life in the Old Testament from 2 Samuel 6. And so what we're going to do this morning is walk through this incredible story 
And then at the end, I just want to draw out some implications for our worship, not just in church, certainly in church, but also in our daily lives. So you can follow along on the screen. I'm going to be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 6, just a few verses at a time as we work through this text. So beginning in verse 1, it says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, you know, I think that's maybe electric guitars, harps, lyres, timbrels, those are drums, sistrums, I think that's auto-tune, and cymbals. So here they are, they're, they're gathered in moving the Ark of the Covenant, and with all of their might, with all of their instruments, they are worshiping before the Lord. And it's, it's King David that's leading them in this incredible worship procession. Now, we know more about David's life than any other person in Scripture. We meet him when he's just a teenager. He's serving out in the fields as a shepherd. And Samuel, the great priest, comes to him and anoints him as the future king of Israel. When he's a young man, he, he goes to, to deliver supplies to his brothers who are off at war. And there he meets Goliath and takes him down. We see him on the run from King Saul. We see him hiding out in caves and, and gathering around him all the, you know, the outcasts of Israel. We see him writing psalms. And then we see him anointed as king, finally. And he's Israel's best king, their greatest king. He leads them with justice and with skill. And yet later in his life, he, he commits great sin. He commits rape. He commits murder. He, he takes this census to try to, to try to glorify himself through the numbers of his kingdom. And so he strays from God even in old age. And yet what one of my favorite writers, Eugene Peterson, says about his life, he uses the words earthy spirituality. And he says that he was a man who lived his life in the presence of God, but did so in the earthiness of music, war, friendship, marriage, sin, fatherhood, death. David let God's presence permeate every single aspect of his life. Now, in this story, the Ark of the Covenant is an incredibly important thing. The Ark was literally an ornate box which represented and, and was the source, or, or rather the place of God's presence for Israel at this time. So it's a box that's four feet by two feet. It had these golden cherubim made on top of it. And then within the crate were the two tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments, the law of Israel. And this is where God would manifest his presence for the people Israel. In the hundreds of years between Moses and David, it had been carefully protected and maintained. God had given these very particular rules for how it could be moved, if it needed to be moved at all. It could only be moved on poles or pushed on a cart, but human hands were never to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And so what had happened was the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, taken it away. But then in any town that was keeping the Ark of the Covenant, people would get sick. Disease would fall on that town. Whenever they would put it in one of their temples, 
they would wake up in the morning and all of their false gods had fallen on the ground and shattered to pieces. So the Philistines loaded up the Ark of the Covenant on two oxen and just released it, and it found its way back to Israel. And so it's on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's several miles off, and David calls for it to be brought to the holy city, to Jerusalem. But look what happens in verse 6. It says, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this place, to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, first of all, this is a a troubling account because God strikes down this man, Uzzah, one of the, the priests who has been charged with taking care of the Ark of the Covenant. It seems on the surface like Uzzah is, is doing his best. He's trying to serve the Lord. And, and yet, out of a simple mistake, he gets thrown down by the Lord. Now, first of all, God doesn't tell us why he struck down Uzzah, and if the text doesn't say it, then, then we need to be careful about imparting meaning into it. But we also realize that this was a critical moment in Israel's history. The Israelites have been treating God with such little reverence and worship and obedience. This serves as a sort of wake-up call for the entire community. Now, some scholars note that Uzzah's main job in life was to protect this ark. So he knew the rules better than anyone. He knew that he wasn't supposed to lay a hand on it. And since this was his job, he he may have become proud over time that he had such an official position in Israel that his job was keeping God safe and in the box. This may have gone to his head a little bit. The use of a cart was a a Philistine invention that's made to move the the ark more more quickly. And so when we think about all these things, we kind of get the picture that Uzzah was was a very secular-minded you know, a thought really high of himself, very efficient person. He's trying to, to keep God in the box and move him as quickly as possible. And so David is grieved and filled with the fear of God, and he, he calls off the move, which probably any of us would do if we saw somebody struck down for merely touching the ark. And they wait a couple months, but while they're waiting, the ark goes to Obed-Edom, this town on the outskirts of Jerusalem, And the household of the one keeping it is is completely blessed. The Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, brings blessing wherever it is when it's in Israel. And so David decides to bring it back to Jerusalem after all, and this time he's going to get together a much bigger marching band. Verse 12. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because because of the Ark of God. So David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Now we'll pause there for just a second because that seems kind of crazy that 
after only six steps, they were carrying the ark now on these poles, which is really what they were instructed to do in the first place. The priest would carry the ark six steps and then set it down, sacrifice at least two animals, and essentially have an entire worship service before the Lord. Now, Obed-Edom was about three, a little over three miles from the heart of Jerusalem. I did the math on it earlier this week. It would take about 1,200 worship services along the way to get there. So six steps at a time, 1,200 times. And even if you were doing this, you know, all day when it was daylight or even through the night, you're still looking at several months just to get the ark back into Jerusalem. And the whole time they're worshiping. They're worshiping, they're praising God, they're pouring out their hearts to God. They have all their instruments out, they're dancing, they take six steps, they sacrifice two animals and do it all again. For David, no amount of time is too much, no number of sacrifices is too high. It's not about getting it right as much as as the text says, honoring God with all our might. Now, if you can imagine being one of Israel's enemies watching from, you know, the next hillside over, maybe the Philistines are looking down, thinking, what on earth are they doing? They're all out here like sitting ducks with with no weapons, and they're moving six steps at a time. We could go down and literally wipe them all out, but they remember what happened the last time they messed with the Ark of the Covenant, and so they don't touch it. And so six steps at a time they move. And this is lesson number one, that worship is foolishness to the world, but delightful to God. In a worldly sense, what good is all this singing and and dancing and praising the Lord? I mean, if God's not real, it really is crazy to to do this, to spend all of your time months after months just singing and, and sacrificing animals, making these offerings to God. In a worldly sense, it's the least efficient way you could use your time. It makes no sense. And so worship then is a a sort of test. How we worship reveals what we think, believe, and feel about God. And we'll come back to that in a moment, but I I want to continue going in the narrative. Verse 14. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, that's that's David's wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now, David is unfazed in his worship of God. He is in his own world here. He's singing. He's dancing. Uh, he's basically down to his linen drawers. I mean, it's, it makes sense. It's the Middle East. It's, you know, burning hot. They've been out here for months. And so he's essentially wearing a T-shirt and shorts. The issue that David is, it's not that he's being immodest. This wasn't like something you, you weren't supposed to do in Israel's culture. He's still fully clothed. The issue is that he's not acting very kingly. He's acting like an ordinary man. He's acting like a, like a commoner. And so when Michael, the, the wife, looks down from her, you know, her palace window from this lofty tower and she sees him wearing a t-shirt and shorts and, and dancing with all of his might before the Lord, she thinks that's not 
the king that I want to be married to. That's not how a king should act. And it reminds me of how Israel wanted a king in the first place, one like the other nations have. Now, God doesn't give them the king that they deserve, but he gives them a king after his own heart. When they finally reach the sanctuary, David, he calls this this last great assembly, verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave them a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. Now, nothing for David is is too great in the worship of God. You know, the Old Testament has regulations for what types of of offerings you're to bring before the Lord for certain festivals and if you've sinned. And the offerings that David is is bringing right now, they're in the voluntary category. These are not required offerings. And he's just bringing more and more and more animals to be sacrificed and offered up to the Lord. It's, It's over the top. He didn't have to give away any any food, and yet he's throwing open the storehouses and giving away the very best that Israel has, all in praise and celebration of the presence of God. It's all unnecessary, and that's the point. It's like the woman in in the Gospels who comes to Jesus and, and breaks open her jar of perfume and pours it all out, anointing the feet of Jesus. All the disciples are are saying to themselves, we could have done something better with this money. There's a more efficient use for this. And yet Jesus simply blesses the woman for her worship. Now, David finally returns home. In verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And then this this sad and, and intense epitaph, verse 23, And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now that suggests that this was, was the overall posture of, of Michael's heart throughout her life, and that she never turned and, and confessed her sin to the Lord to be restored. Now, this story alone has so much power in it, but I want to I move to just a couple of implications that we can draw out about our worship as believers today. First of all, worship is delightful to God. Praising God delights Him in, in the core of His being. Worship, as, as John Piper put it, is an inner, authentic, Godward experience of the heart. And so there's, there's an inner and there's an outward element to worship. Piper writes, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly 
and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in visible acts of praise and visible acts of love in serving others for Christ. Now, I think this is a a helpful distinction that there are two expressions of worship, the the inward heart level of worship and then the outward expression of worship. And these two things should be seamlessly connected in our hearts according to the Psalms and according to to the teachings of Jesus. Worship is loving and treasuring God above all things. And then that, that inward adoring of God simply overflows out of us in worship, in praise, in prayer, and in service to the world. And so worship is delightful to God, but second, worship is foolishness to the world. Now we've talked about this quite a bit here. Our culture in America is secular, meaning it's not anti-religious, Uh, it's not even non-religious, it's just a-religious, which means all religions are welcome as long as you sort of keep it to yourself. Now, unlike some previous generations, most of our peers have not grown up in church, and so they're they're not aware of this sort of God-sized hole that we can come and, and fill with the gospel. In a secular culture like ours, people go about making meaning and finding satisfaction totally apart from God. It's as if they're living a flat or a one-dimensional life and they never have a need for, for something bigger or greater. They never see a need for transcendence. And so one philosopher calls it significance without transcendence. Now, my question is not merely how do we reach secular culture. First of all, it's how has secular culture reached us? How, how has it filled the church? How has it filled our hearts And my thesis is is that we believers, we often believe like secularists. And and as worshipers, we often worship as secularists as well. Now, there are are exceptions, of course, and what I'm thinking of here is the the majority white churches that have done well to emphasize Bible study and and theology and and services are professional and well done and ministers are are well-trained and professional but churches really struggle to sing. Now, again, there are exceptions, but I think in our, our sort of tradition or our tribe of churches, we really struggle to sing these days. I don't know if you ever watched Parks and Rec, but there is a, there's an episode where there's this, uh, there's actually more than one episode, but it's a cult that comes and reserves parks uh, when they think that the, like their dragon god is going to come and like wipe out the world with fire. All right, you remember that? And they're called the reasonableness, the reasonableness, is that right? Reasonableness, uh, because it helps them get a reservation. You know, they just say, well, that sounds reasonable. You can't, you can't not trust a group called the reasonableness, even though they're kind of crazy. And as I think about it, I think in, in our world of churches, Bible study is very reasonable. You know, small group discussion is very reasonable. Standing in worship is very reasonable. But when it comes to like actually raising our hands or, or lifting our voices with, with bold intercessory prayers for the world, it starts to get a little unreasonable or uncomfortable. 
Now, I want to balance this already because I'm, I'm all for thoughtful and, and orderly worship that, that connects deeply with our hearts. You may notice at Trinity, we sing songs that have real uh, you know, meaning and, and power. They're, they're often historical hymns that have been around for centuries. Even the newer contemporary songs, they, they lead us into the presence of God. Our goal in our worship here is not to just create a, a sort of high-energy hype experience so that you are just overwhelmed by the sounds and you raise your hands. It's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but our goal is, is to connect a couple of things. It's to connect the, the deep heart tradition of singing in the church, of singing songs that really have words that shape our hearts, and to sing those songs with with passionate, self-forgetful worship. To put it another way, we want to be shaped more by the Scriptures than by the world. Now, there's a pastor in London named Pete Hughes, and he has said, when the Israelites find themselves in exile, the more secular it gets, the more spiritual they get. In other words, when, when Israel is in Babylon in exile, or when the early church is in Rome in the New Testament, they don't try to, to out-intellectualize their secular neighbors. Instead, they try to bring them into a feeling of transcendence. They try to invite them into a holy God who is totally different than anything this world has to offer. They invite them into to prayer and worship and faith taking their, their one-dimensional lives and, and sort of lifting the ceiling off of it. And so here's how I, how I want to encourage us as we start a new year. I want to encourage us to, to lose our self-awareness. Now, I'm not talking about our self-awareness that's like understanding your personality and your strengths and weaknesses and, and how other people experience you. I'm all for that self-awareness. What I'm thinking of is, is the the overly sensitive or overly aware kind of scheming to feel how everybody else is viewing us. You know what I mean by that, by self-awareness? Knowing at all times who's around us, how they might be perceiving us, what they might be thinking about us in that moment. So we might say, well, I don't have a great voice, so I'm not going to sing. Or I've never lifted my hands before, that would be uncomfortable. Or I've never prayed out loud before, people might wonder what I'm doing. And so I'm just going to stand here and reflect. There's nothing wrong with that. God moves in in deep ways in our hearts. But I want to encourage you. There's these words from Eugene Peterson again. He says, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. In worship, we we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and we attend to the presence of God. And so I want us to to sing and to experience the depth of the scriptures and these rich hymns that, that lead us into a deeper life, but I want to do so with all of our might, just as David himself did. We are whole human beings. We're, we're embodied souls. And what we do with our bodies, it has a shaping effect on our minds and our hearts. You don't have to tell kids to, to use their bodies to, to play sports or to, to dance. 
Kids instinctively know how to use their bodies. They have to be told how to have restraint. They have to be taught how to be reasonable. And so for us, I think the the movement that we need is to not wait until our hearts are moved enough to where we might raise our hands, but to raise our hands until our heart is moved. See, our hearts and our minds follow our bodies far more than our bodies follow our hearts and minds. And so even if you don't feel like it, I mean, if you feel terrible and you want to sit and reflect, praise God. But even if you don't feel like it, sometimes just raising your hands or singing out loud, suddenly you begin to feel how, how you're acting. Your heart begins to be lifted to the Lord. Your mind begins to change about your circumstances. The way you feel about your fellow neighbors tends to shift as well. One of the church fathers, St. Irenaeus, famously wrote, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. We don't have to be careful and cautious with God like Uzzah. We shouldn't look down from above on those common people and their, their simple worship like Michael. They're so aware of themselves, their, their role, their impressiveness, their managing appearances. But like David, may we be women and men who are fully alive to God. Undignified, foolish even in the eyes of the world, but delightful to the heart of our Father. Let's pray.